Entrepreneur, executive, and altruist, Eddie Wilson, owner of the American Association of Private Lenders, most in the space know it as AAPL, sat down with me to chat about his serial entrepreneurship, the incredibly important work of the AAPL as an advocacy group, and we also chatted about another one of his companies, Think Realty. Eddie is about as entrenched in the private lending space as any human being alive. He shared nothing but objective, detailed insights about our space. I learned a ton. I hope you do too. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Dalton Elliott, joined today by Eddie Wilson. Eddie, thank you for joining. Yeah, glad to be here. So you have, you know, a lot of guests. I can sum up who they are with with one title. If you had to pick one title out of the thousand hats that you wear, what would that be? Eddie Wilson. Yeah, so that that's a tough one. I think we my branding team narrowed it down to entrepreneur, executive, and altruist. So that's about the three you know categories. I think I I, I landed. I like it. I'm definitely furthest away from the very last one. So I'm working on it. I, uh, I may pick your brain on that offline a little bit. But you're the owner of the AAPL, the American Association of Private Lenders. Spectacular organization, really the grandfather of advocacy for the private lending world. And it was, I think, the second conference I actually went to in my tenure in this space. I've been in private lending for seven years since I graduated college. This was my first stop off at Lima One Capital. And in East was the first conference I went to. The second one I went to was AAPL just because of the you know timing of the conference circuit. So we're going to dig into that. But I want to touch on the entrepreneurial background, right? So you have started and owned many, many dozens of companies. And as you sit there today, I see like a logo behind you that's not the AAPL logo. So I'm like, what, where in the world is Eddie? So, so where are you right now? Yeah, so this is actually a brand new venture we started six months ago called ProSpace Studios. Think of it, typically most of my investing revolves around either technology or real estate. I'm a third generation real estate investor, passionate, can't, you know, I have a hard time turning down a deal. I'm a deal junkie for sure. And this was really, I owned a, a TV studio and we'd rented it, we'd rent it out but really was looking for ways to maximize my commercial real estate space during COVID. And it was like, how do we find businesses that essentially can withstand the issues of COVID? And I have some commercial holdings. And so this is a center unit studio that is for rent by the hour. Influencers use it, brides use it, photographers, Amazon resellers, you know, all kinds of interesting people. But it's just a for rent studio. Think of it as an Airbnb model. Uh, that they rent it by the hour specific to either videography or cinematography. And the net and cash flow is fantastic on them. So we're getting ready to build number location number three and four here pretty soon. That is crazy. Just uh, can you give us a quick spin on the camera you, you did beforehand? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So that that's the logo. And the studio is just basically a big open space, psych walls, black psych walls, white psych walls, LED walls, and pretty much everything that you would need for production. And so People come in here, we've got great lighting packages, camera packages. It's a full sound studio, so we've done music videos in here. I don't know if you have ever heard of Mont. You remember Montel Jordan, the This Is How We Do It guy? He's he's local, so he's been in here doing some music stuff. So it's just a fun, it's a fun little place to, to and it's right up the street from my house, so I use it as an office half the time when no one else is using it. 
There you go. I think we've kind of unintentionally stumbled upon an incredibly important principle on the real estate investing side, which is you, you have to be nimble and flexible, right? Like everybody was at the quote, a Tyson quote, I think it's like everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth and COVID punched everybody in the mouth. And this is a great example like where you are right now, a great example of, you know, pivoting, realigning a space to fit what's working right now. So a really good example. So let's circle back to AAPL. How did you go from, you know, serial entrepreneur and startup to saying, look, I want to get deeply intertwined in the AAPL and eventually to the point where you say, I'm just going to own all of it. I'm all in on this. Walk me through that story. Sure. Yeah. I can do it pretty quickly. I think I was buying companies, just uh, acquiring companies, investing in companies. And I had invested in a big insurance company. And up until 2019, I owned 86 companies that I actually ran concurrently. Sold 76 of those in 2019. And one of those companies was a big insurance company. And I come from both real estate and banking. That's my background, my grandfather, father, you know, that's the industry that, you know, was always talked about around the table with me. And the private lending industry was always kind of a black mark at the table because I had a, you know, grandfather, father that was involved in banking. And so they would talk about it like shark loans and these guys that would take advantage of people. Well, it was interesting as I got into insurance, we built a product that was specific to the real estate investor. And realized that half of the loans that were coming across our table were really private loans. There were loans that were either being originated by these hard money companies. And I know we we don't typically use that term anymore because it's really not hard money. It's easy money. Or people that were lending out of their self-directed IRA or something like that. And my business partner there, he was a part of the foundation of the American Association of Private Lenders. There was about six or seven guys that founded it in the very early days. And, and just along that process, I, I began to fall in love with that, that space. It was a space that was so underserved and it made the real estate side of my life happen at a much more rapid pace without the constraint of the conventional banking system. The conventional banking system isn't built for investors. It's built for retail users. And, and so you want to go get a home mortgage? They've built an entire system out for that. You want to bring in a hairy real estate deal that's got six or seven twists in the middle of it? You know, the bank really has a hard time getting involved in that, either from regulation or, or you know, from a liability concern. So, you know, for me, I, I started seeing how the private lending industry and the real estate industry just went hand in hand. And then, you know, the recession happened in 2009, you know, 2010, and there was this massive vacuum that was created that really the private lending industry filled and gave opportunity to investors to continue that growth. And I saw it in my own family and friends where maybe their banking relationships were failing because of the recession. They still had huge opportunity and really garnered huge wealth because of the private capital. I, I saw how that worked hand in hand. And it really went from, in my mind, the shark loans and the hard money to what I believe now is just this private stream of capital that's looking for opportunity. It's, it's opportunistic and, it, and it's very much win-win associated. And so anyways, and then you know, after the recession, there was a lot of people that had damaged credit, struggled to really find the capital to keep investing. And even though they were community builders, they were hindered from building those communities. And so the private lending industry really jumped in because a lot of the loans, you know, back in that day were specifically asset-based loans and asset-based lending, and they've really filled a gap. So when the opportunity came to purchase, I was a small minority owner in AAPL, 
through some other, other investment practices. But then when the majority owners decided they were going to sell off, I decided to take it. Not because it's really been a financial center for me, but because I really believe in the power of the industry. And I really felt like if we could put a, a parentheses around it and package it better, you know, whether by perception or by marketing an opportunity, either to Wall Street or to DC or to Main Street investors, that it really was there and serviced a need. And that needs the American dream. These people are out there searching for these opportunities. And without the private lending industry, it just really doesn't happen for many people. So I think that as a whole, it really provided this great opportunity. And so I decided to go all in and really build out this American Association of Private Lender group specific to just continue to build the industry. Yeah, you you touched on something there, the hard money versus private lending, right? Even 2015, when I came into the space, hard money was still the term that was used. We considered ourselves, we still called ourselves hard money, right? And, you know, at the day job firm, but there was an acknowledgement that there's a difference between us and the traditional hard money lenders. And thankfully, I think the more forward thinking above board strat of the industry, which most of the industry uh, has really bought into and adopted the private lending piece, but that's part of a transformation. And it's, it's super exciting time to be part of this industry. It really is kind of like V2 whenever really the rockets get blasted. You look at institutional capital that has flown into this space, you know, really over the last five to seven years, that if you go back 10, 20 years, it's exponentially more fragmented of a space. You didn't have uh, lenders like us and, and go down the list of you know a handful of lenders in the space that are doing one, two, three billion dollars a year. And then so many groups doing that 500 to billion and many groups working their way towards being uh, large nationwide lenders. And so much of that's because of, kind of the institutional capital flowing in and the acknowledgement that hey, we as an industry, we have to be above board. We have to, we can't be sharkish. The goal should be putting money on the street that comes back to you with a reasonable return, not putting money down on a deal and saying, this thing is absolutely going to fail and the wheels are going to fall off in the next few months. And this is going to be our you know, South Beach company condo because we're going to foreclose on this thing and take it back. So on that piece, really walk me through kind of the mission, purpose, and activity around the AAPL as an advocacy arm. Sure. Yeah, we decided a few years back as I took majority ownership that we were going to go down this path of ag advocacy and education and ethics, where we were going to make sure that we held an ethical standard inside of our community, every person that joins, signs a commitment towards this ethics that we all hold. And we have an ethics committee that uh, uh, ethics violations get brought in front of, and we may revoke membership. I think we revoked one or two memberships last year just because of unethical practices. But then education, yes, both to the lender, but also to the community and the, the, the grouping around us at large. So whether that's investors or Wall Street or even, you know, D.C., and we spend a lot of time in D.C. educating our legislators as to how we uh, fill gaps in things such as blighted communities or, you know, affordable housing. We really step in where others can't. And so we're all constantly educating. And then the last piece is advocacy. We do not take a strong-armed approach to our legislators. And here's the reason why. 
back when we actually, you know, were making this decision, it really was one or two directions. It was like, do we go this path of lobbying and being a lobbyist, or do we go more advocacy and education? And at that point, I think we we did a study and there was right around five or 6,000 private lenders in the country that were doing it as an active business model. More the, what you're talking about, like this, this institutionalization of this industry. And there was only five or 6,000 people. And so we thought, you know, if we signed up all 5,000 people, there's still not enough money to make a dent because typically our interests are not aligned with interests such as NAR, the National Association of Realtors, or the Mortgage Association, or even groups like NARPM. Sometimes we're on the opposite side of the fence as them. And we didn't have the capital to fight them. We didn't have you know, the big dollars that they had. And so what we had to do is go in from a very different, you know, grassroots approach to advocacy and build relationships. You know, things like we fought licensure in the state of Florida four times where the state of Florida was trying to license. And typically that was driven by the mortgage association, trying to license anyone that lended. Now that that was, it was so finite in their details. One year that it came up, it was if you lent $25,000 or more, even out of your self-directed IRA, you not only had to have a license, but you had to have a brick and mortar. That's how tight this legislation was that they were writing. Well, I built a, a great relationship with Governor Scott and went and had dinner with him, explained to him what happened. He said, Eddie, if this gets all the way to the place where I have to veto it, I'll veto it. And it did. It went all the way to the very last second. We were kind of crossing our fingers going, man, I hope, I hope these relationships pay off. And he vetoed it. He actually vetoed it. He vetoed it two times in a row. Then he moved out of office and we had to go to Tallahassee and fight it. And we did fight it, but we fought it from a very educational standpoint, explaining to them time and time and time again, this is the capital you're removing from the marketplace. Let me show you example after example after example of house and community that's been rebuilt on private capital. And this isn't some mom and pop that's being taken advantage of. This oftentimes is Wall Street downstream that's trying to you know, get money into the marketplace to find decent yield. And it's a partnership towards these businesses that are willing to, to pick up the hammer and, and uh, shovel and, and make these properties valuable again. And so showing them over and over and over again, we've been able to defeat that four different times. This advocacy approach, if you look at the SEC law on the new accreditation standards and the new accreditation law that was written and, and modified just a year and a half ago, we're the only credible witness that's cited in there. I think it's page 62 or 68. When we talk about the actual like sophistication of the loan or of the investor, the American Association of Private Lenders is listed in there as the credible witness that brought all of that, the new terminology to the table. We did that because we've built big relationships. This month, we've been sitting down with regulatory boards, you know, Humda and explaining, look, every form you ask us to fill out, that we're loaning to businesses. like, And so when you ask us, what gender is this borrower? It makes no sense because we're lending it to an LLC. There is no gender to this LLC, that we're being put under these really interesting constraints. And so AAPL has really done a great job. And I'm not saying that there aren't other groups out there that aren't doing equally as good or that shouldn't take the lobbyist approach as we've grown and Wall Street has interest now. I don't think that there's not, I think there's plenty of room for a lobbyist today. But today we've already built those deep relationships with an advocacy approach that really opens the doors for us to go in and behind the scenes have conversations with Tim Scott about opportunity zones or, you know, Governor Scott in Florida, you know, previously about license licensing. Or I spent, you know, time in New York with the governor there talking about this, uh, this tax that they were trying to put on top of flippers. 
So we just take that approach and feel like that's been the most effective way for us to be to be effective for our constituents. Yeah, I, I love the rundown and you cited a bunch of really prime examples. If I could play devil's advocate for this for a second, right? Like on the licensure piece, right? If someone said, well, like what's the big hassle about getting licensed? Isn't that good to have that type of regulatory flavor? Does it really hurt anyone? What's the thought and response there? Yeah, because this industry is built to try to get capital as quickly as possible into the hands of those people who can do the most impactful work with it. The last thing you want to do is put constant, you know, rapids in this river. And it's one more rapid, right? And so, for instance, there was, I think the study that we did showed it was hundreds and hundreds of millions. I think it was close to $900 million that came into real estate development through IRA investments. So this is somebody in their self-directed IRA that's investing, right? But it's looked at as a loan. They're lending, you know, to someone else to take their capital for a good rate of return. So it, it hurts multiple people. Number one, it hurts the community that has this house that's blighted that now doesn't have a reperforming asset. That reperforming asset's paying taxes. It's giving a good home to a family. But then now upstream from that, it hurt the investor because he makes a living off of essentially reperforming those houses. The community then that you know is building the houses, the contractors, subcontractors, but then go all the way to the person who is the retiree who doesn't quite have enough for retirement and they're constantly working their self-directed IRA capital to make sure they're getting more return because maybe Wall Street isn't performing for them. And so it hurts this whole stream of people. And that $900 million that was coming from self-directed IRAs, it doesn't even, you know, it, it pales in comparison to that entire stream of capital that's coming. And so, you know, the mortgage industry has a very specific interest. And when you have one party, you know, fairness is oftentimes equality between two parties when both win. You know, the mortgage association was pushing this and the narrative that we are pushing is, is that you're actually creating a non-fair environment to both parties. And one now has monopoly in an area and you're forced through this channel. And so by nature, when you're forcing people through a monopolized process, you're actually anti-capitalism. Capitalism says the best capital, the best money, the best process, it wins and it makes it to Main Street. And so when you constantly restrict, you are pushing back those capitalistic principles that our nation was founded on that allow business to happen. And uh, so that's one example. I could probably go on all day on that one just because we spent so much time in, in Washington fighting this piece. No, salient points for sure. So so what what would you peg as the single biggest kind of landmine in the future of the private lending space? What What keeps you up at night when you think about it? Yeah, you know, I think that capital always finds a way to the deal. I actually feel like I feel so bearish on the lending industry as a whole, because I think, you know, the conventional lending space, they're going to get some mortgage increases here in the near future. It's inevitable. The Federal Reserve's already said probably three increases of maybe a quarter percent each. So, you know, what happens is, is this Wall Street money that's been infused into our space that's sophisticated and savvy looking for a return is going to find additional opportunity. The gap and the, 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 I think the gap is going to widen for the private lending industry. But I think as far as like landmines, I think it surrounds 
restrictive legislation specific to how that capital, you know, is it finds a home. And it's weird. It's in weird areas, you know, such as taxation, additional taxation on capital that's going to properties that aren't owner occupied. There's a lot of legislation out there on the build to rent communities that's being written today that they really don't want these massive aggregations of build to rent communities. And so I think that could stunt some of that capital moving in. And then maybe another big one is just affordable housing. The government's misunderstanding of affordable housing is quite staggering because they look at us as anti-housing because they think we're increasing the values which prevent more people from getting in. The issue is, is that oftentimes we're reforming an asset that has no tenant anyways, you know, so it's really difficult. And then right now in a, in a market like this, a lot of the reperformance is going straight back into retail on an asset that didn't exist. And with, you know, 6 million homes un- being 6 million homes underbuilt today in the United States, it's like there's not enough assets being put back into the market. We're, we're in, in many cases, the only hope to get more assets in and quickly. Yeah, that the inventory piece, right? If, if there's anything I could point my finger to and say, look, look, regardless of most anything that's out in front for at least the next couple of years, like housing is going to remain strong because there's such a supply demand imbalance. And we still have the persistence of material and labor shortages, like true material, material labor shortages that I think most investors that I speak with are expecting the same types of shortages and issues in 2022 that they had in 2021. There's no expectation of of great relief around it. And anything relief-wise perhaps will be offset by the increase in prices, you know, whether it's material or labor that you're paying for. So yeah, I share that kind of bullish view. And that was a good breakdown of really a couple of contrasts between you know, private lending, non-owner occupied interests and the forward resi side of the fence, which is the massive beast, 800 pound gorilla in the mortgage industry. And before I got into this space on the lending side of the fence, I did not truly appreciate that there was a difference between the two. You know, I thought the mortgage industry was the mortgage industry, getting a mortgage was a mortgage. And in a lot of ways could not be further from the truth. And unfortunately, to speak to that, unfortunately, Wall Street does understand the difference today. But unfortunately, D.C. still in many cases does not. You know, we're regulated in one and the same. And that's why a group like this is just so vital to our our efficacy. Yeah, it's kind of a double edged sword there, right? In general, the larger an industry gets, the more scrutiny it's going to get. Right. Yeah. So you have we've we, we as an industry have convinced the Wall Street world that, hey, this is this is a viable field to play in. And a handful of years ago that there was no meaningful thought around that. And what do you think, you know, how, how does that balance play out? Like what you go years down the road, the industry gets bigger, it's going to get more eyes on it from a, from a regulatory standpoint. How and that that's that's kind of counter to the direction it should go because, like you said, this is business purpose lending. We're not lending to Dalton Elliott. We're lending to you know Elliott Enterprise LLC. Is it just the continuous battle and advocacy efforts of groups like the AAPL that that recognized early on that this kind of rain and then storm is out in front of us and we just have to forge ahead? Is that? I think that's a mechanism that we can use to stave off some of it. I don't know that that's the sum of all that needs to happen. Self-regulation is always the best regulation. 
and where there's no self-regulation, then the government always feels the need to step in. I think because we have an ethics committee, we do have a, we have a GRC, a government relations committee. We do have an education committee. We're constantly in there as advocates explaining, here's our system of ethics. This is what we ask our constituents to adhere to. We're happy to play on your side of the fence if you need us to and to express to you or to bring you know, some concern back to this body. And I think that as a minority group, we're still, there's still a massive disparity between the big conventional lending you know, groups and the private lending group that we're still not even on the radar yet. And so I think constantly you know, playing that advocacy role and explaining and educating, letting them know, hey, we are self-regulated. This is what we're doing. Uh, help stave some of that off. In the end, regulation is inevitable when there is growth. If we're above board and we play the advocacy role right, and that's why I like playing the carrot over the stick. Sometimes the lobbyist approach is a stick. And oftentimes, you know, I sat on a subcommittee for finance, and anytime someone said in a lobbyist, when the lobbyist would leave the room, the legislators would say things like this. What do you think they're hiding? Because they wouldn't be paying for a lobbyist if there's nothing to hide. So maybe we should dig into it. As opposed to an advocacy group like us, where we walk in and we go, we're open book. What do you want to talk about? Like, where Do you want us to go do research for you? How about we do a data poll on exactly what you're asking? You know, We have an entire data program at AAPL where we poll our lenders and feed it back to DC. So when they say, we're not really sure about this. We'll say, hey, well, we'll go get the data for you. And so it's, you know, a really interesting approach. And I feel like we're, we're, we're holding it off. Inevitably, it's going to come. If we have deep enough relationships and we can keep, you know, going down that path of relationship, I think we can massage it down a path that, that is beneficial for all. We'll never, you know, resist regulation forever. It's coming. As we grow and Wall Street gets more involved and our industry is known more and more, so that the average hedge fund and grouping around that's looking for return, regulation will come. However, if we build deep enough relationships, we can create the narrative to make sure that the legislation is something we can live with. Yeah, very common sense, but proactive approach from the AAPL for sure. I want to save some time to talk about Think Realty. Okay. So I, you know, I, I, I know of you through the AAPL. I guess I've massive, everybody in this space knows the AAPL. Everybody also knows about Think Realty. I didn't know that Eddie Wilson was the connecting glue there. So give me the rundown on Think Realty and what are y'all seeing? You know, you mentioned data through the AAPL, right? Just what having so much information through the Think Realty line, what's on y'all's radar for 2022? Sure. Yeah. So Think Realty is just a real estate media platform. We founded it in 2015. I'm the founder of that. And uh, it was just, no one was aggregating the real estate investor. You had groups out there, bigger pockets, others that really had a good hold on it, but auction.com, groups like that, they had massive data, but no one had really aggregated it. And so that was Think Realty's mission was to aggregate them by education and providing discounts and opportunities to them. And so we have, we have aggregated a lot of the industry. We've got about, about a million people that touch that platform every single month that are real estate investors. And by and large, these are mom and pop investors one to five units. You've got some multifamily and some bigger guys in there that have grown, but it really is the main street real estate investor. And to that grouping, we pull a lot of data. We spend a lot of time with economists, a lot of time with guys like Doug Duncan at Fannie Mae or Lawrence Yoon at, at NAR and groups like that. And it really provides that data input that we need 
to make sure that as a real estate in, investment group and media platform, they were advising and speaking to the greater whole of what's going on nationally. And I really see massive opportunities still on the horizon. And a lot of real estate investors are just pointing, they're getting more savvy and sophisticated every day. And they're pointing their capital, sometimes small capital, sometimes large capital, at very big opportunities today. They're way more sophisticated than they were 10 years ago. And so as we look at like regional opportunities, I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that are like, you know what, I, I was investing in, in New York, I'm moving to Florida, I've got 20 deals going on in South Florida, groups in California moving to Idaho and Texas and Utah and Oregon moving to, it's, it's, it's this amazing flight and we're getting all kinds of data points on this flight of not just like people moving for jobs, or, uh, but, but for opportunity. Real estate investors by the droves just moving. They've got enough disposable capital, they're chasing opportunity. And the opportunities are growing exponentially in these in these communities because you know because their capital is pushing that opportunity. I'm a huge investor, especially down in South Florida, building lots of houses in the Cape Coral area, and lots that I was buying for thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars. Now I'm getting offers from additional real estate investors for two hundred fifty thousand less than a year later. It's just it's this crazy exponential growth. The cap rates are amazing. And they're all chasing it. And, I, and they show up down there by the droves. And I was just over in Texas and Dallas this past week and tons of investors moving from California. So I think that's what's going to be interesting is like, I think you can't really put your thumb on where the activity is going to continue, but you're seeing these massive spikes. And I'm really curious to know how that's going to affect some of these areas that are having massive flight out of. You know, Manhattan just registered one of its largest retail sales quarters in history, Right. But I know hundreds of real estate investors that have fled the boroughs and are not investing in New York City. So you just wonder, you know, where is all this coming from? And I don't know what's going to happen. But when the dust settles, I think you're going to see massive pockets of growth. And I think then you're going to see areas of, of blight that just don't have real estate investors touching them and, and improving those communities any longer. Yeah, that, that sounds like an almost inevitable outcome, right? And I letting you deep into my soul, I have this bad uh, trait sometimes that when things are going very well, I just can't sleep at night. And I'm like, when is everything going to drop? When's the shoe going to drop? When's everything going to explode? And whenever you say you were buying lots for 30, 40, 50 a year ago and, and getting pretty sizably into the six figures from offers, that makes me scratch my head. But they're, you know, it's so individualized market by market like you can't make broad strokes you know ah this is everything's going to fall apart there are so many markets that have had rationale and reason behind their growth and appreciation you're in Atlanta Atlanta has no shortage of that right like Microsoft's building out there you have really like the whole new version of Hollywood Hollywood is not is soon not going to be Hollywood anymore it's going to be Atlanta Georgia if it isn't arguably already so that's an area where it's like, you know, you've, we've had a bunch of oddness around the real estate with COVID, but you can point to so many markets and see, you can rationalize the appreciation. Greenville, South Carolina, which is where we're headquartered and I'm talking to you from right now, uh, same kind of story, 
right? Like you, you can rationalize the appreciation. You could see the development downtown. We have kind of a big Grand Bohemian hotel right on the river, which is big for little old Greenville. So you can look at large groups that are bullish on the development. So I'm, I'm interested to see, uh, you know, and just keep an eye on pockets around the country the next couple of years. It's just going to be, it's going to be fun to watch. So for folks who want to learn more about the AAPL and the, the good work y'all are doing, what's where's the best place to go? Sure. Go to aaplonline.com, aaplonline.com. We always have a conference in the fall. This year, it's in October. It's a great place for real estate investors as well as lenders to either find capital, you know, deploy capital. It's just a great marketplace to turn into or to find out, you know, what uh, what's going on with legislation. One thing that I would encourage is to go on our website and sign up for the for the constant newsletters and info that we put out specific to legislation. I think everybody should be at least apprised of what's going on. And we do a really great job with our GRC, Government Relations Committee, searching out opportunities throughout the country and letting people know about it and then really arming them to speak towards these issues. And then sometimes we even call on them to go to the state house with us. Beautiful. Yeah, those, those email updates... I have probably half a dozen I subscribe to and and those help me keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on. So thanks for all the work y'all are doing. Eddie Wilson, let me see if I get it right. Entrepreneur, executive, altruist, and 10 out of 10 podcast guest. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for joining, Eddie. Thanks everybody for listening. Take care. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team. And that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.